Good morning. Uh, how are you? Good to see you. Glad you're here. Welcome to those of you joining us online. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director, and I have very much looking forward to being with you again in this setting. Uh, I preached this sermon at nine o'clock, and uh, you know, my kids often come up after a sermon, and they decide, decided to give me feedback. And uh, my 10-year-old daughter was like, oh, it was really great, Dad, but it needed more jokes. So have you heard the one about, I'm just kidding. That was a joke in and of itself, see? You see what I did there? I didn't know there was a joke quota. We are finishing up our series, Theology of Work. And if you've been here, or you've been joining us online, you've known that uh, Trevor and Jeff have done an incredible job, and I would like to add my voice to this series. Uh, they're, they're not sequential sermons, but they, there is some overlap. So it's more like a Venn diagram, you know, uh, that there will be some overlap. You'll hear that in my second point. But I, I would also like to add some variety here this morning as we talk about what it means to work and how do we apply uh, what the Bible says to our daily nine to five and whatever you do. So I'd like to ask you a question. What is your relationship with work? I saw some faces. What is your relationship with work? Maybe you love work. You love it. You're like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You whistle while you work. You've never had a case of the Mondays. You're just happy, 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 right? Maybe your coworkers want to slap you. Like, you know who you are. You love it so much. Maybe your relationship to work is like a Buffalo Wild Wings commercial. You ever seen these things? They confused me so much. How in the world did a whole group of coworkers leave work in the middle of the day without their boss knowing and go gather at Buffalo Wild Wings to not just watch one half, but to watch the whole game? And not only that, but they're drinking on the job. Have you thought about that? I found some work memes. Maybe this describes you. I like this first one. Going to work when I first started my job versus now. <laughs> I won't tell you what I wore on uh, April Fool's 2020, but it did involve Crocs and a fanny pack. I've told you enough. What about this one? Getting ready for work like that cup. Uh, Starbucks has that cup. It's in the back. You have to ask for it. It's a special cup. Uh, this one was a good one. Me driving home from work, knowing I'm only going to go home to eat and sleep so I can do it all again tomorrow. Some of you are like, yeah, that's my relationship to work. Our hope in this series has been to present a theology of work in service to you so that we can continue to filter and think, um, how do we engage work well? What does God think about our work? What should we think? How should we feel about our work? And is there, is there something spiritual about the work that we do, even if it's quote-unquote not spiritual? And we've been using work in a very broad sense. So maybe you get a paycheck for what you do, but maybe your work doesn't involve that. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, and that's your calling right now. That's your vocation. Maybe you're a student. Ooh, boo, hiss, school starting, and that's your calling. So like, how do you be a good student? That's your question to ask as a believer. Maybe you are, uh, you're an artist or you're in the arts ministry or whatever it may be, and what you do for your nine to five is not necessarily your love, but it provides, but you love to create, and that's what you do in the evenings or on the weekends, and you're like, this is my calling. This is my vocation. Maybe you're caring for an elderly parent right now. And you're like, this is work. Help me understand how to do this well. So 
My goal this morning is to try and answer this question. How do we orient our relationship to work in such a way that we won't be consumed by its promised fulfillment and we won't be crushed by the passing futility of it? I'm gonna say that again. How do we orient our relationship to work in such a way that we won't be consumed by its promised fulfillment, where we, where we expect work to answer all of our deepest questions, and we won't be crushed by the passing futility of it, this seeming meaninglessness that we experience in our work. How do we do that? And my goal is to try and answer that and answer it well. So I'd like to start off with a story from Jesus in Luke chapter 19. It's called the parable of the 10 minas. Now you may not have heard it, but you may have heard its sister parable in the book of Matthew called the parable of the talents. So it's similar to that, but not exactly the same. Luke 19, verse 11 through 27, it reads like this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. A minas was a sum of money, like three months laborers wages. So five, $7,000, just something like that. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and they sent a delegation after him and said, you know, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now listen, it's less about return and more about responsibility, as you'll hear. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, or well done, my good and faithful servant, as we know. His master replied, Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, you shall take charge of ten cities. Second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, and the first part is implied, well done, good and faithful servant. You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, well, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. And he replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The parable of the ten minas. Now, in summary, and for our purposes today, let me just summarize. A nobleman is going away, and he entrusts his servants or his stewards with responsibility. I don't want us to only think about monetary value, but it is responsibility. I'm giving you something. I'm entrusting you with it. Do something with it until I return. Going to be made king, going to come back. Now, two of those servants come, and they actually have different values. I've taken what you gave me, the mina, three months worth, and I've made uh, ten more. Well done, good and faithful servant. Great job. Now I'm going to give you more responsibility. And there's a long-term vision here, as we'll get to later. And the next one comes and said, I've taken what you've given, and I didn't make 10, but I, I, here's five. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your maker, as Matthew says. And then there's one person that says, you know what? I didn't do anything with it. I just sat on it. It just felt like, I, I, what was I supposed to do? And I didn't get into this and I didn't work for it and I just buried it because I knew that you're a hard person and you know, then this conversation goes on. So the question is this, 
what does this have to do with us and what does it have to do with our work? And what I'd like to say is that how do we become like the first two servants? How do we become those type of people where our work doesn't consume us, as we'll see, but our work doesn't crush us? How do we do that? And I have three points today. The first one is this. We need a new identity. We need a new identity. We were made to have a secure, a spiritually, emotionally secure identity. And because of that, we ask this from the deepest places in our heart. We ask questions like this. Do I have value for who I am? Am I loved for who I am? Am I secure in who I am? And we look for these questions in all sorts of ways. Because we, have, we live in a world east of Eden and our heart is fallen, we look for all sorts of things to give us this answer. And all sorts of things to say, oh, I'll love you no matter what. You can, you can do whatever you want. I'll love you no matter what. We're looking everywhere for this. And work is, is like this power supply in creation. And it's a very powerful allurement to try to find the answer to these questions. And because it's often an extension of who we are, we start to place this weight upon what we do. Right? Rene Descartes said, you know, I think, therefore I am. Well, we in the West today say something like, I do, therefore I am. This is my identity. This is what I do. And the reality is this. We've placed a heavy burden and a heavy expectation on the promised fulfillment of work that it can never satisfy. When we do that, work becomes our identity, and we will not be able to handle success or failure when work is our identity, and success and failure are a normal part of work. Let me say a little bit more about this. There was a, there was a writer, uh, Benjamin Nugent, uh, he's published several books and articles, and um, years ago in the New York Times, he had to stop writing, and he tells the New York Times why, and he said, you know, I was getting to a place where I wasn't enjoying my work anymore. I wasn't just trying to be a good writer. I was trying to be the best writer. And so every sentence I would write, I would overanalyze it. I would pick it apart. I would just shred it. And it became so consuming for me that I actually had to step away from writing because I knew deep down that I was asking these ultimate questions that it just could not answer, these identity questions. And he went on to say this, I was making the quality of my work the measure of my worth. And when work is our identity, we make the quality of our work the measure of our worth. When work is our identity, we make the quality of our work the measure of our worth. And when we do that, we will not be able to handle any success or failure. What do I mean by that? If work is our identity, when we're successful, it will go to our head. And when we are unsuccessful, it will destroy our hearts. If work is our identity, when we are successful, it will go to our head, and when unsuccessful, it will destroy our hearts. It goes to our head in a few different ways, and one of the things that you see about these two people that have a healthy relationship with work is they didn't come back and say, hey, you gave me Amina, I made 100. Or you gave me Amina, I made 50. You don't see them trying to get the ultimate questions that they long for, this value and significance, and do I have meaning, and do I matter in this world? They're not trying to get an answer by work, so they're not overcompensating by being a workaholic. They're not trying too hard. They understand there's a healthy rhythm and a healthy engagement to work. But when our work is our identity and we're successful, it goes to our head, we become arrogant. And this plays out in a few different ways. Sometimes 
when we're successful and work is our identity, uh, we start to think that we're experts not only in that field, but in all sorts of fields. You've had these conversations with people. You may be at a dinner party and someone has had a hunch or they've had two hunches and they've made several million dollars or maybe they've been successful in this specific field and they've risen to the top of their game in that field, but they start to assume that I've been successful and I'm an expert in this area, therefore I'm an expert in every area. And I can tell you how to run the school and I can tell you how to coach that team and I can tell the the parents how to parent their kids. And the problem with that is they start to assume that they don't make mistakes, that they don't make relationship mistakes, they don't make parenting mistakes, and they start to alienate people. The second way this plays out in arrogance is people tend to think that we got here by ourselves, like it was me. It was my own hard work, it was my own ingenuity, my own, you know, I seized the opportunity that came before me and and I get the credit for it. There's a story uh, about this, one of the kings of Babylon in Daniel chapter 4, and he had this mentality, so much so that he he spoke it out loud. Daniel 4 verse 28 says this, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, that's how you pronounce it, I expect to hear that in the future, that is how you say it. Nebuchadnezzar, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And do you see how much ego is in that? And when work is our identity and we're successful, we actually forget all the people that helped us along the way all the things that just came together, all the teachers and all the mentors and all that our parents did and how the circumstances actually just line just right, we forget that all really was grace. It was grace. And so we fall into this type of arrogance. And actually, God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar later in the book of Daniel because of that. So if work is our identity, we can't handle success, but we also can't handle failure. We can't handle any type of failure. It just destroys us. We were probably all shocked um, and horrified to read of the string of suicides following the 2008 economic crisis. People who had invested um, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars in certain companies and they had lost it and it had just all gone away. And the investors themselves and those who had lost the money, there's this string of powerful, powerful people taking their own lives. And the failure was just too much. It was just too much because when work is our identity and it goes bad or we fail, as we will fail to some degree, it just destroys us. And when we're afraid of failure, we're never going to take risks. We're never going to take jumps. We're never going to say, ooh, I think I can try this. Let's try it. And we all know that we learn a lot more from failure than we actually do success. Failure is a necessary part of learning how to do these things. And when we're afraid of failure, we don't really evaluate, honestly, our strengths and weaknesses. So we may not say, you know what, maybe, maybe they should handle this project. That's not really my thing. I'm good at this one over here, but maybe they should take that on because I just don't have the skills. Or we may not say, I need help. I'm good at this, but I need three people around me that can really help me with this. That's not my strength. But when we're afraid of failure, we don't risk that. We don't say that. And we can't handle failure if work is our primary identity. So if you do not want your work to sink you, your identity must rest in the person and work of Christ. 
He's the only one strong enough to say to us, I love you as you are, not as you should be. I love you not based on any type of performance, but I love you because I created you and you have intrinsic value simply because you're breathing and I died for you and I rose again for you and I've set my unfailing and unflinching love upon you and I can hold the weight of all 10,000 pounds of you and you don't have to measure it based on performance or success or failure. That's, that's the identity that is secure enough. That's the Christian faith that gives us a healthy identity and when we have that identity, we actually have humility. Oh no, it wasn't me alone that got here. It was a ton of people around me. A ton of people around me really helped and I don't get uh, all the credit at all. It actually gives us humility for success, but it also gives us confidence when we fail. You know what, I can, it's okay. I can learn from that. That doesn't crush me because we're gonna get better and we're gonna try it again and we're gonna do it differently and I'm thanking God for this opportunity. You see? Then and only then will we be able to handle success or failure. And when our identity is rooted in the person of Christ, then success won't sink us through a superiority complex. I'm better than you. And failure won't sink us through an inferiority complex. I'm no good at all. You see this? Whew, moving on. Okay, that was point one. That was a lot of work. You guys with me? You tracking with me? We rolling? All right, two of you. Good, good. Uh, we need a new identity, but also we need a new dignity. And we've tried to say this quite a bit in this series. We need to understand how God views work. And how God views work is this. All work is sacred. There's not this part over here where this is the God stuff and that's sacred and then everything else, not spiritual, is not God stuff. That's the false dichotomy. And I went through a period of time in my life where I really had to wrestle with this. I wouldn't necessarily call it a crisis of faith, but it was definitely an inflection point of faith. And my struggle with something like this, like, okay, um, if all this stuff over here is, is quote unquote sacred, but everything else is secular, well, God cares about like praying and reading my Bible and like well, maybe evangelizing and like when I you know give to charities or do good works of service, like that's the good stuff. But what what about all the other stuff? Like what about people who don't work in a church and they're not missionaries? Like what about that life? My mom was a nurse. My dad worked for the IRS. My brother owns a kettlebell gym, and my younger brother is in IT and he's in IT. Like what about them? Is it a work that they do? Is it pleasing to God? And I really had to wrestle with this because it was causing me uh, a lot of struggle. And I was going into Covenant Seminary uh, in 2010, and one of our first classes actually was a guest professor, and the class was on work. And there, they gave us some really great framework for how to think through this and how God views uh, what people do, what most people do in their everyday nine to five. And it was based a lot upon what Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s, had done because in his experience, he, he really tried hard to become the best monk he could be because the words like calling and God setting you apart was really only used for those people who were going into church work or missionary work. And so he's like, okay, uh, God calls people to this and I got to be the best I can, but it just didn't work out for him. He couldn't do it. But then there was this idea of like, well, what about the rest of the people? Does God not call them? And sometimes we say things like this, like, well, that's not necessarily sacred work, but you can make it sacred. You can make it sacred by, I don't know, praying over it or evangelizing your coworkers. But what if you can't evangelize at your work? Like, that's 
prohibited. What about that? Or you can take the money you give and you can give it to charity. And while those may be good things, it still doesn't answer the question, yeah, but what about what I actually do? What about that? Is that in itself pleasing to God? And Martin Luther did a lot of work in, in, in his writings about this. And he basically came to the conclusion based on a passage in the Psalms where it says God feeds every living thing. He was like, oh, if God feeds every living thing, how does God feed every living thing? Well, he feeds it through the person that milks the cow and that sows the seed and that harvests the grain. And he feeds it through the person that drives the truck and puts the produce on the shelves and stocks it and prepares it. And he feeds every living thing through the cashier when it comes to our table, and God feeds every living thing through those people, so therefore God has called those people to that work. And he's actually on good grounds because Paul says this in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. This is a very beautiful verse. Live as a Christian in whatever situation, whatever work you have, wherever God has called you to work, whatever situation you're in, live as a believer. That's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7. But do we really understand that all work is sacred work? There is a, there's a bathroom in the airport of Charlotte in North Carolina, and in this specific men's bathroom, there is an attendant standing there. And if you go into this specific men's bathroom, the attendant standing there will say hello, and he will introduce himself. Hello, my name is. And then, and then he will say this, welcome to my little kingdom. And I tell you this, that in his little kingdom, the paper towels are always stocked. There is always clean counters. The floors are clean. It is spotless. It is refreshing, and that man has taken great pains and great pride over his little kingdom. And until we understand that what he does is just as sacred as what, as what pastors and missionaries do, then we haven't got the real view of God's work. I also got one amen in the nine o'clock, so I'll take one amen at 1045. Tim Keller says it like this, all work that helps people is God's work. All work that helps people is God's work. You say, well, I'm in the arts. You know, I paint, I compose. Yeah, but where would we be without you? Where would we be without beauty and how you lift us up from the muck and mire of everyday existence? Where would we be without engineers and artists? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians, God calls pilots and politicians, and God calls plumbers. God calls people who package pork skins. God calls journalists and disc jockeys. God calls car salesmen and coaches, carpenters, creatives, chefs, comedians, and chemists. God calls them all. It's all good work. So in and of itself, it's pleasing to God. Don't make it sacred. It is sacred. There are no second-class callings in the kingdom. There are no second-class callings in the kingdom. We all have different callings, and we're called to live out as best we can inside each of those callings. So we need a new identity. We need a new dignity. And lastly, we need a new hope. We need a new hope. I, I wonder 
this third person that was given this calling and responsibility and just buried it, I wonder, and this is guesswork, if something like this went on in their mind. Like, well, what's the point? What's the point? Because, you know, we'll spend a few months here doing this or that, and the guy's going to come back, and then he's going to have the money. It's all his money, and, like, I don't even feel like I'm making a difference. And, like, I don't understand. Why would I do this? It just seems kind of meaningless. And if you've worked for any amount of time, you've probably felt that to a greater or a lesser degree. People say that um, parents of young kids feels like they're making sandcastles on the beach every day. Like you build the sandcastle, you go to sleep, the tide comes in, sandcastle's washed away. You wake up, you build a sandcastle, you go to sleep, the tide comes in, you wake up, the sandcastle's washed away. You get it? And you start to feel this futility of it, like, am I even making a difference? Does it even matter? Especially as you get later in life, you start to think, have I really done that much? And we start to experience the futility of it, and then we're going to need something strong to set against that type of despair, to set against that type of experience. And I would argue we need a really strong hope. Like, does our work matter now, but does it also matter then for eternity? Like, is there something that passes through after I die that goes there? Because if not, it just feels like, oh, this is meaningless, cringe. Like, what are we going to do? We need a sophisticated hope. And I say sophisticated because when people start to really think about this, they do wonder what's going to happen in eternity with the work that they've done here that we try to tell people is very meaningful. Well, is there even going to be anything there that relates to it? And some of the answers that we give, I would argue, are not very sophisticated. Sometimes we say, oh, the afterlife is just like you sitting on this cloud floating around in some type of spiritual bliss. Okay, well, that's not very hopeful. I don't know. Maybe it does something for you. It doesn't do anything for me. Or maybe this one hits home. Like, we start to say something like, you know, like, eternity is a perpetual church service. So, you know, if you don't like worship now, you're not going to like worship then because that's like all we're going to be doing 24-7. You know what I'm saying? I've heard that. And not only is it somewhat unsophisticated, but it's not very biblical. The Bible actually paints a really robust picture of what life, how life could continue here to then. So that what we feel like we've barely eked out anything here, it may actually have some type of semblance in the future. Let me illustrate this with Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. Now, in the, in the title headings of this, this uh, section, it's called the new heavens and the new earth. It's important that we say new earth because there is a continuation of this earth in the new earth, okay? So here, here we go. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp doesn't say there is no sun or moon, just says it doesn't need it. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. That's a key phrase. The kings, the rulers of all nations, different cultures, different ethnicities, at different times, will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations Again, will be brought into it. What is John saying, and does he have anything in mind as he says this? He does. It's in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, 
the people of God are in captivity in Babylon where that great king Nebuchadnezzar reigns. And they are going to go back from Babylon, back from exile. They've been 70 years there. And Isaiah is writing to them. They're coming back from this exile and they're going to go into Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was destroyed. And what do you need to do to a destroyed city? You need to rebuild it. So this is what Isaiah says. Listen to Isaiah 60 with Revelation 21 in your mind. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night. Sound familiar? So that people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. And John is likening the new heaven and the new earth to what it feels like to come back from exile. But when you come back from exile, you have to rebuild. And Isaiah 60 says, foreigners will rebuild your walls. Now, what do you need to rebuild walls? Well, you need stone, you need bricks, you need mortar. What do you need to build city? You need lumber, right? All that settlers of Catan type stuff. And you know, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna, how are you gonna get clothes? Well, you're gonna have to have cotton and you're gonna have to harvest cotton. I don't know if that's the right terminology. I'm not a farmer, you may be. And you're gonna have to, the, the sheep are gonna have to be sheared or shorn. I don't know which one it is. Will be sheared? Is that it or shorn? What do you think? Wrong, it's both. I don't know. But there's gonna have to be work in the new heavens and the new earth because the curse has infected everything and there is a rebuilding that must take place. Now think about it like this. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be work but there will be no pain in the toil because there will be no thorns or thistles on the ground because the curse will have been removed. There will be no resistance. We will not struggle with motivation, whether we struggle with depression or just all out despair or just we maybe have a big lazy bone. Like we will not struggle with it because there will be no inhibitance in the human heart, but there will be no inhibitance outside of that. All of our relational dynamics will be purified. Work will be done with honesty and integrity. People will get to create and compose and do construction without a curse on the ground. This is what John means by all of the kings are bringing their splendor. All of the greatest creations of every culture are bringing this into the city and they're saying, look, but now there's no ego attached to it. So it's not for our glory, it's for God's. And work will actually be fulfilling and it will not be our master, but it will be our servant. And maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, yeah, but what I, what I dream about really doing, I just can't do. I just, I can't do it right now. I don't have the time. But we will have the time. And we will be able to create. And we will be able to manufacture in a way that actually serves the common good of humanity. And it serves the flourishing of humanity. And that was what it was intended to be. It was meant to be a really beautiful thing that we get to engage in and create and find purpose and meaning and it not crush us. And this is what this parable speaks of. 
that being faithful with our calling here and now implies we'll be faithful with our calling then and there. And somehow, in some mysterious way, our work is not meaningless. It matters, and it will actually continue into the future. And this parable teaches us it's not really about more leisure, but it's about more leadership. It's about being faithful with what God has given us now. And he will give us more to be faithful with then. So if we have those three things, a new identity and a new dignity and a new hope, I think that will enable us to work with integrity. We start right now because the way we work now is going to be the way we work then. We start right now. We deal honestly. We're up front and we help people and we make a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. We work with integrity and we're fair and our reputation begins to spread and people begin to see God in that. And we work wholeheartedly. We work wholeheartedly. We can't give our best to everything all the time, so let's don't chase that. Let's don't chase it. We can't be perfectionists, so let's don't chase that. That'll crush the human soul. But we can give ourselves over to the thing that we are doing in the moment wholeheartedly and say, I'm gonna be here right now, giving my all to this email. I'm gonna be here in this small moment because there's a big moment coming next week and I would like to be fully there in that big moment. I'm gonna give myself wholeheartedly to this. And thirdly, and maybe this is just what I would love for us to pray this morning, we need to work with an inspired vision. God, what is your vision for the work that I do? Would you renew me? I've looked for it to, to give me the ultimate answers and that's caused a lot of pain. I've felt the futility of it and I've kind of given up and fallen into despair and that's caused a lot of pain. I thought it didn't really matter. I thought God's work is only over there and this doesn't really matter because it's not God's work. God, give me a fresh vision. Give me a fresh vision over what I do every day and what I do on my nine to five and in my evenings. Help me with that. And I believe God will answer you. And we won't be perfect workers, but we will be faithful workers. And the watching world will meet God in and through our work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your text for the stories that you tell. Thank you that they intersect and invite us to change our stories, to change our perspective, to widen it, to be enlarged in our heart by it, or to let go of some things, to get rid of some things that are not helpful. I do pray for those who have been crushed by success because work has been their identity. Would you help them see that everything's been grace. Everything's been a gift. They've worked hard and taken that opportunity, but it's all been a gift. God, I pray for those who have been crushed because they failed and they just can't get over that mistake. Lift them up. Give them a confidence in you because after all, it's only work. Give them a fresh perspective. Father, no matter what we do, may we feel deep in our bones you are pleased with it because it's helping others. And God, anchor us in a firm hope, an earthy type hope, one that is strong enough 
set against the hopelessness that we often feel in our work because it repeats itself so much. Give us that grace for your sake, not for our sake, not so we can walk out on, on the rooftop of the palace and say, look at what I did, but so that we can say, hello, welcome to my little kingdom. For your sake we pray, amen.